Welcome to Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American for the seven days starting February 13th, 2008. I'm Steve Mursky. This week, a chat with epidemiologist Paul Morantz about how studies on lots of people's lifestyles lead to health recommendations and medical interventions. We'll have a Valentine's Day poem from a listener, plus we'll test your knowledge about some recent science in the news. Paul Morantz is professor of clinical epidemiology and population health at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine in New York City. He and colleagues recently published a controversial paper in the American Journal of Preventive Medicine. On Monday morning, February 11th, we talked in his Einstein office about the article and about the philosophy behind recommendations based on studies. Dr. Moran, it's good to talk to you today. Hi, Steve. Very interesting paper you have here, uh, Call for Higher Standards of Evidence for Dietary Guidelines. Let's let's cut right to the quick, and then we'll back up a bit. But your your basic thesis is? Our basic thesis is that the standards that have been applied to determining and promulgating dietary guidelines for all Americans have been insufficient to protect against the possibility of harm. And in fact, our analysis suggests that there indeed may be harm that can be um, an outcome of these guidelines. And once that's considered, the issue of standards of evidence becomes much more pressing. And specifically, you're talking about the dietary guidelines about fat as that's, an example. That's the example we, we focus on. I, I think that the general concept is of dietary guidelines is one that we explore because we were curious as to why we even are in this business or why the government is in this business. So by analyzing and focusing on the dietary fat guidelines, which we're not the first to do, others, uh, Gary Taubes, Mike Pollan, others have, have made that point in, in the lay press, and it's been in the professional literature as well. But uh, we provided another data analysis consistent with the notion that focusing on fat led Americans to eat more calories overall, has contributed to our obesity epidemic, and that in light of that evidence, we really should be extremely cautious and careful when issuing guidelines. Right. So the, the specific point that's controversial uh, is that the dietary guidelines that were put into effect by the government in an effort to get people to cut down on their fat intake actually contributed to the obesity epidemic. And you, you point out this, you know, it's very simple math. People did cut down on their fat calories as a percentage of total calories by increasing their total calories. That's it. Yeah, you can you can change the percentage or the proportion in two ways. You can reduce the numerator, how much fat people eat in total, which was clearly the goal of the of these guidelines, or you can also get the same effect proportionally by increasing the denominator, how much total calories you eat, how right. many total calories you eat. So now you have people, well, I've cut my fat percentage down to below the 30% that the government recommended, but they're eating 3,000 calories a day instead mm -hmm. of 2,500. We can all remember, and in fact we still do, wolf down these low-fat snacks uh, that seem to us to be healthful or safe because we were really all taught that if the food were was low-fat, it was healthful. That was the inference that we were led to, to make. By the way, this is not ancient history. The first uh, official published dietary guidelines for all Americans were published in 1980, and 
that it is now a legal mandate that they have to be reissued every five years, you know, reevaluate the evidence as it's done and uh, reissue the guidelines. Then the focus was on cardiovascular disease. So a single-minded focus, or at least a primary focus on dietary fat, made sense with the cholesterol hypothesis. And of course, we weren't focusing on total calories. We were focusing on dietary fat. The irony is now that we have the obesity epidemic, suddenly calories have become the issue. Go back a little bit uh, to the idea of dietary guidelines. You point out in the paper, the government first issued nutritional guidelines mm-hmm. in 1894. Mm-hmm. But these dietary guidelines, as you say, are, are kind of new. The original guidelines, well, why don't you explain well, the difference? They, they, they made great sense in the turn of the century when uh, public health professionals were trying to meet the mission of public health, which is defined as assuring conditions in which the public can be healthy. That's how public health is defined. And um, in a time when malnutrition was a problem and the emergence of nutritional science was helping public health professionals understand what needed to be in the diet in order for people to be healthy, to avoid deficiencies, it made good sense to issue information about oh, the way in which vitamin C can prevent scurvy and that sort of stuff. And that's where the, I guess, the minimum daily requirements came from. Over the 20th century, we did see our nutritional concerns move from issues of deficiency to issues of excess. And in that shift, we saw a focus instead on the sorts of problems that excess leads to, coronary artery disease, diabetes, obesity, those sorts of concerns. In, in your paper, you, you discuss something that doesn't get really talked about too much among lay people, and that's one of the, one of the key kind of philosophical uh, foundations of epidemiological studies and policy uh, recommendations, and that's this idea of small changes in risk for individuals uh, winding up making large changes in outcomes in populations. That's something that really informs a lot of the decision making. So let's talk about, you know, we, we see it in, uh, cut back on your salt if you're, uh, if you have uh, hypertension, uh, and in the dietary guidelines too with cholesterol levels and diet. So what's, let's get to, let's talk about that a little bit. This idea of little changes for people making big changes in populations. One small step for a man, one giant leap for mankind. There you go. Um, No, I'm glad you picked up on that because I think that really is a crux of this argument. And I don't think it is well appreciated. We can date or at least credit the the important insight to a great British epidemiologist, Sir Geoffrey Rose, who put forth what he called a, uh, a population approach to prevention a different sort of strategy of preventive medicine. And what he pointed out, and this was, I guess, during the, I'd left, I think his classic papers were in the 70s or 80s. You could find that. I, I don't remember it off the top of my head. Where he pointed out the great successes we've had in preventive medicine through our traditional high-risk approach. Hypertension is diagnosed. You get your blood pressure checked. We decide based on lots of good evidence that, If your blood pressure exceeds a certain value, it deserves to be treated. We may have different kinds of treatment protocols, but we identify you as high risk because your blood pressure is high. We treat the blood pressure, and in so doing, we make the inference that we have lowered your risk. And there's good data behind that. 
there is now. When it was first done, is it not true that when these kinds of uh, widespread recommendations and treatments went into effect, we didn't know that lowering blood pressure would decrease your risk of stroke or other cardiovascular issues. No, that's we just true. assumed it. Now we have data that show that that's the case. Mm-hmm. But the the uh, recommendations and policies went into effect based on the correlations before we had data showing that there was causation. Right. And in fairness, Steve, these we can only use the data we have. Um, and this is, in fact, I think a great triumph of scientific inquiry that led to a, a very logical sequence of events. There was good physiologic and observational uh, data to support the belief that higher blood pressure would lead to strokes and heart attacks. That was then followed up by epidemiological observations that showed that association. That creates a hypothesis that says, okay, if high blood pressure leads to more heart attacks, lowering blood pressure will reduce heart attacks. But you're quite right, that doesn't prove it. But now you have blood pressure as an important target for intervention. Drugs were then developed and approved where the only thing initially they could show is that they could reduce blood pressure. Okay, that's fine, but that's only an intermediate endpoint. The next step... Right, because the important thing is we want to we want to stop disease, exactly. not just the markers for disease. Right, and hypertension is a funny case because... We all think of it as if it were a disease, but it's really not. It's an arbitrary cut point on a physiologic variable, your blood pressure. And above a certain cut point, we say you've got this thing that we call hypertension. Below it, you don't. But but we need that. We need to operationalize this clinical behavior, this high-risk approach that I'm, that I'm referring to. And then ultimately, the high-quality the, the high studies, randomized clinical trials looking at the important endpoints, heart disease and stroke and mortality, were done and did demonstrate that with certainly with certain classes of drugs, that treating high blood pressure reduced those bad outcomes. So now we've come full circle and that belief has been proven and we continue to treat high blood pressure. And that's an effective approach. But what Rose pointed out is that high-risk strategy by identifying, say, the top 25% of the population in terms of blood pressure and risk still misses 75% of the population who are also at risk. There's no free lunch in this, or whatever the right phrase is. Okay. You know, no one's immune. There's no free salt-free lunch. No free salt-free lunch. Because Nobody's immune from cardiovascular disease, so we all are at some risk. Right. Let's let's um, spell it out a little more clearly. Most people who have high blood pressure or what's considered to be high cholesterol will not have a cardiovascular exactly. incident. Exactly. And many people who have normal blood pressure or normal cholesterol levels will. Thank you. So that's that's really what's going on here. But the population versus individual conflict is really what's addressed in these studies, and Rose really addressed it. So that's right. So now talk about what he what he wanted us to do. Exactly. You imagine this bell shaped curve, and at the upper end of the distribution. That's, that's, I don't know if this is helpful. It's helpful to me. I can. I think the, the listeners can see the bell-shaped curve in their, in their mind's eye, and you know, we're talking about over at the right where it gets skinny. Again. Exactly. So up at that higher end, you've got folks who are at greater risk, more likely to have these bad things happen to them, but there are fewer of them, because as you point out, it gets skinny over there. And what about that big group in the middle? So what Rose said is, well, it's great to take that upper tail and shift it back to the left, 
But what if we could shift the entire curve to the left? Ever so slightly, it would still have, it would actually have a greater effect on the population, on overall health. And this was a, a really a powerful insight. So a population-based approach, even though the actual incremental benefit at the level of the individual is minute, and arguably it's unmeasurable. In fact, Rose referred to this concept of the prevention paradox, which is that very powerful preventive interventions will have no measurable effect at the individual level, mm -hmm. but big effect at the population level. So, in fact, he talked about salt. You mentioned that. He said, imagine if we could reduce the amount of salt people eat, which would shift the blood pressure curve over to the left just a bit, that would have a powerful impact magnified over the entire population. He said in his paper, this all presumes that the change is, is safe. So I want to be very clear, this concept that by eating less salt as a population, we will reduce our blood pressure and therefore improve our risk of cardiovascular disease, that's a hypothesis that has actually not been proved. My um, my senior co-author on this paper, Dr. Mickey Alderman, has actually written quite a few papers challenging that dogma and, in fact, pointing out that there are inherent risks involved in reducing salt intake. So that these things that are so ingrained in us as to feel like truisms often are not or certainly may not be. And I think what is important and the reason we wrote this paper, but it's also something that I recognize is really challenging to understand, is that it's much more confusing than we'd like to believe. Can you give us a number, just, just to make this point even more clearly, do you have to treat something like 6,000 people with high blood pressure in order to get one person who uh, does not have a cardiovascular event because of it? Yeah, you know, that's there is this epidemiologic concept called number needed to treat. Right. And it, it, it all depends on how long you're treating them and which trials you're looking at. The number that I remember, and this is going back a while, was that you needed to treat 850 hyper, mild hypertensives for a year in order to prevent one stroke. Okay. But, you know, and, and I guess as a soundbite that sounds, you know, gee, what, where's the efficiency there? Why? I mean, we're putting so many people at risk of the treatment for so little benefit. But the fact is, this is the way preventive medicine is always practiced. Outcomes that we are trying to prevent tend to be rare and take a long time to occur. And we never can be sure which of the many people we're trying to prevent it in are it's actually going, to be, going to be the one who's going to get it. <laughs> right. So we have to use a shotgun approach right now. And, you know, there's a lot of talk about the promise of genomic medicine. Let's hope we get there. In fact, we will get there, but we're not there yet. And we're still using the clinical shotgun approach. We're also using a clinical public health, uh, a shotgun public health approach. And, and that's what we're really trying to tackle in this, in this paper. Right. You, you quote Hippocrates, first do no harm. And you wonder whether or not the, issuance of these guidelines actually does more harm than good. Well, and even once you've raised that question, which is what we're trying to do, I think that does change the discussion. It is easy to go ahead and tell people what they ought to do when we believe in our hearts that there's no downside risk to that. And I think we have believed it. I've believed it 
So it's <laughs> this analysis and this paper came from actually several years of debate between me and my senior co-author, Dr. Alderman, until we realized what it is that we were arguing about. In fact, it started from a time where I said in a in a lecture that we were giving together that the standard of evidence for public health guidelines is lower than that for clinical recommendations. That was a statement I made. Uh, Mickey pulled me aside after the lecture and said, you know, I completely disagree with you. And we ended up in a back and forth on this. And it took a while before we realized that I was describing the standards that are applied. He was talking about the standards that ought to apply. And once we realized that that was the cause of our debate, we began the process of writing this paper. And in some ways, this paper is designed to start a conversation. That's, that is our goal. We, we, we recognize that it's challenging and, um, maybe provocative. It's not meant to be obnoxious, but it is, it's, it's saying in a way that is challenging because it's, it's not, there aren't easy answers that come from this. Okay. So then what should we do? And I recognize that. I mean, I, the best we could come up with and what we say in the paper is rather than focusing on the guidelines, the sound bites, the instructions, just provide the information in all its complexity and then allow people to make their choices. Uh, or that, provide no guidelines at all. That's the more controversial. Well, I, I mean, that's kind of what I'm saying there. I, not providing guidelines doesn't mean we don't provide information. Right. And, okay. and I do understand and share the concern that, you know, without some sort of governmental academic expert vetting, people are going to hear all sorts of stuff. And there are a lot of people with axes to grind or pills to sell. And, um, I think it is appropriate that there at least be some way to get information that you can trust is reliable. That's a worthy goal. But unfortunately, the reliable information often leads to, well, this is our best guess at the moment, but this may change, or, or the evidence is okay on this one, but really not strong. That level of hedging and, and caveats is, is un aesthetic, but we think you need to have it. And it's something that we're comfortable with within the scientific community, within journal articles, but becomes something that people are less comfortable with when they're giving out these governmental uh, summaries of, of the findings and what to do with them. So things get stripped down and people just say, make sure that less than 30% of your calories are fat right. rather than discuss details. Right. Well, and stripping it down is a beautiful example of that in the case we're discussing is the food pyramid. What better, nice, simple way to distill all these reams of, of complex data to a point where you can say, okay, look at this image. And what we have is this base of a pyramid, which is filled with bread and rice and pasta and cereal and all that stuff, which we are being told is okay, because that's the base of a healthy diet. And then at the top is the oils that you have to use sparingly, oils and fats. And and that really, I think, was the take-home message of that very effective mass marketing campaign. I know my kids were brought up on it, and i got to tell you, I had some very obnoxious little kids around the dinner table telling me what they had just learned that day in health class 
and it really used to annoy the hell out of me. I got to tell you. <laughs> so you have a whole nation that's carbo loading all the time. Well, I don't know what they're doing now because they're getting confused. Well, that was the old pyramid. Yes, we that's right. About, right. Well, the new pyramid. Have you looked at that? I have. Yeah, it's and I think that's wonderful because it's completely incomprehensible. <laughs> if you look at that thing, you have no idea what it actually wants to say. So, to my mind, that's a that's a great step forward. The the only. Um, really clear messages that you should walk up the pyramid, right? There's the guy climbing right, it. Right. So the, you know, the use of, uh, they're promoting exercise. That's a clear message. The rest of it, I don't know what they're saying. Right. Uh, the pyramid's in the September issue of Scientific American, by the way, if anybody wants to look at it. Um, you did start a conversation with this paper because you, the same issue of the journal also carries a response by Marion Nessel, who we've had on the podcast, and Steve Wolf. And uh, they take you to task for some things, and then you take them to task in your response. Everybody's very civil to yeah. each other as they uh, rip out each other's livers. So. Yeah, well, it and and I do think it comes from a you know a really collegial disagreement, and you know this is why I love academic medicine. I mean, we do get to disagree with each other, but we try to do it on the strength of our arguments, uh, not on uh, vitriol. Doctor Morantz, thanks very much. Appreciate your time. Thank you, Steve. Morantz's article, The Response, and the author's retort are all available online, free. The whole package is actually very readable and entertaining. Just go to www.snipurl.com slash paul-siam for the article. The responses are at snipurl.com paul2-siam and snipurl.com slash, you guessed it, paul3-siam. Listen to this. Amazingly, that sound came out of a human being, Brazilian singer Georgia Brown. Siam Magazine recently ran an article by Ingo Tietze on how the human voice produces all the singing sounds it does. It's free at www.snipurl.com slash sing hyphen Siam. Take it home, Looch. Now it's time to play Totally Bogus. Here are four science stories, only three are true. See if you know which story is totally bogus. Story one, most of the money spent trying to alleviate back pain appears to be wasted. Story two, lots of kissing on Valentine's Day. Oxytocin is a hormone involved in feelings of bonding. And when a man and woman kiss, their oxytocin levels naturally rise. Story three, paleontologists have found the fossil of a teeny tiny pterodactyl. And story four, the sun-like star Tau Bootis flipped its magnetic field from north to south sometime during the last year. Time's up. Story one is true. Looks like most money spent treating back pain is wasted. Research by Richard Deo and colleagues at the University of Washington, published in the Journal of the American Medical Association, finds that spending on back pain has gone up 65% since 1997, but without much effect. You can find the August 1998 Scientific American article, Low Back Pain, by Deo, that's D-E-Y-O, at SiamDigital.com. 
Story 4 is true. Tau Boetis did flip its magnetic field from north to south in the last year. The finding appeared in the monthly notices of the Royal Astronomical Society. Actually, our sun's magnetic field changes its direction every 11 years, but this is the first time that such a change has been observed in another star. Story 3 is true. 120 million years ago lived a pterodactyl the size of a sparrow. It was toothless and had curved toes, the better for perching in trees. The find was announced in the online edition of the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. All of which means that Story 2, about oxytocin levels rising in both partners during a male-female kiss, is totally bogus. Because a study found that oxytocin levels rose in the males but actually fell in the females. The researchers think that women require more than kissing to feel emotionally connected or sexually excited. For example, the experimental setup may not have provided a romantic atmosphere. Of course, that didn't stop the men. For more on kissing, you can read the article Affairs of the Lips, Why We Kiss at SiamMind.com. Speaking of Valentine's Day, I was a guest on the Skeptic's Guide podcast a while back, and I mentioned a letter from a reader to the magazine, and the letter began, I am not scientifically smart. So, uh, you know, we talked about how seriously we would take the rest of such a letter. Anyway, one of the listeners to that podcast and to this one, Kristen Jones out in San Francisco, was uh, inspired by the opening of that letter and wrote a poem for Valentine's Day. She sent it in, I liked it, and I'm going to read it to you now. It's called Argument from Ignorance. I am not scientifically smart, or keen enough to break apart, the covalent bond that binds my heart to yours and leaves me thrilled with a sense of strange adventure. I am not scientifically wise to decipher the message in your eyes, or thus employ my own two spies to coax your vitreous body into infinite regression. I am not scientifically sage, and despite the advancement of my age, I would fling myself down at your bipedal feet and dissolve in hot cesium vapor. I am not scientifically shrewd, but your sweet voice puts me in the mood and surrounds my throbbing superior vena cava with the modulation of its exquisite softness. I am not scientifically bright, but with some persuasion I think I might lay photons on a sensitized silver halide plate and stamp myself upon your cerebral cortex. I am not scientifically clever. To possess you in totality will happen never, and I will remain doomed forever to orbit your heart like a castaway. Little unrequited love on Valentine's Day, but that happens too. Well, that's it for this edition of the Weekly Siam Podcast. You can write to us at podcast at siam.com and check out numerous features at siam.com, including the latest science news, articles from Siam, Siam Mind, and Siam Body, not to mention all our podcasts. For Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us.